Well, good morning, Parkview. It is a wonderful morning to gather together to worship on this Lord's Day. Uh, despite the cold, the rain, the snow that has arrived, I want to give a special shout out to our live stream viewers who I'm sure are numerous today on a day when it's hard to get here. I'm thankful for you to come um, and for those who have stayed, stayed home, uh, perhaps wisely, especially depending on uh, your travel. Welcome. Just want to acknowledge you. Um, as weather, the cold, the snow, the rain, has reminded me of uh, a little story from my childhood. Uh, and I hope you can relate. Now, when I was young, uh, well, first of all, you guys know when it's cold out, the temperature drops, and then it's also windy. Meteorologists have a term for how it feels colder than the air temperature. You guys know what that is? Wind chill. That's right. Okay, all of you know this. And so you have a leg up on me, because until I was a pretty embarrassing age, maybe 20, I didn't think that the, the phrase was wind chill. I thought it was windshield. That's right. It made perfect sense to me. Uh, it made perfect sense to me because if you're in the car and you touch the glass, it feels a little colder than the rest of, right, than the air. So it made perfect sense. Okay, it's 30 degrees out here, but the windshield is 20, right? <laughs> it made a lot of sense to me. In hindsight, it was very silly, and I, I think I was in college, you know, and I was with my friends. I said, oh, it's cold out, but what's the windshield? And I said, what are you talking about? Um, it's funny how, those, you know, things like that, you sort of reflect on them and go, what was I thinking when I was a kid? I remember at, uh, in this sort of a similar vein, has anyone here seen the movie Pinocchio? Okay, I'm sure most of you have. This movie's been out for 80 years, so I'm not ruining it for anyone. Um, but I went back and watched that as an adult, uh, especially, you know, I've got nephews now, I've got a baby of my own, seen some of these movies that I watched when I was a kid, and I loved Pinocchio. What a, it was a charming story, wonderful story. Uh, and um, I watched it again, a little older. I don't know if you guys have seen this. This is a terrifying movie, okay? This is, it's a toy who becomes an actual boy and is immediately sold into child slavery to this guy, Stromboli. He's put, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. He ends up on Pleasure Island. He's been, it's really, it's a pretty scary movie. Um, and, and I never even thought about that until, you know, you sort of revisit it when you're a little older. Um, but like I said, it's funny how time and you, you sort of develop and the things that you understood as a child um, and, and you learned or you, you thought uh, turn out to be a little bit different. Uh, memory is kind of funny like that. Now, those things are kind of trivial, uh, not really impacting our everyday life, but, you know, getting a word wrong, misremembering a story, things like that. Uh, but when we come to the Christmas story, the stakes are raised. For many, if not all of us, I know for me, uh, this Christmas time, the time we celebrate Advent, Christ coming into the world as a, as a little baby, uh, it's, it's a time washed in warm feelings and nostalgia and just sort of the wonder of, of Christmas. Right? And, and that's so wonderful. I love it. Later today, we're going to decorate our tree, and it's going to be snowing, and it's going to be wonderful, and we'll have cider and, and all the fun stuff. And because of that, it's also sort of a dangerous time. After all, the story of Jesus is the story of the one true king coming to earth. Have we gotten the details right? Are we misremembering, like I misremembered Pinocchio and Windshield? <laughs> Have we got the characters right? What they're doing there, what their significance is. Do we know what they mean? 
Over the next four weeks, we're going to be working through uh, almost as if we have sort of na- a nativity set. That's why this call- series is called Nativity. And sort of picking up each little character. Maybe you have a set like this at home. Um, Mary and the shepherds and, and the angel and, 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 of course, Jesus uh, on Christmas. And considering the story of Christmas from each of their points of view. Sort of entering into uh, each of them and asking the question of each character as we pick them up and, and sort of turn them over in our hands. Asking this question, what does this character teach us about God's salvation. What do they teach us about God's salvation? So as we uh, begin, and we'll be in Luke 1 today, if you want to open your Bible, I would recommend that, or flip there on your app if you're on your phone, etc., or open another tab on your browser if you're on the live stream, I guess. Um, The question we're going to be asking is, what is the gospel according to Mary, according to Mary, the mother of our Lord? And to put it in a an encapsulated sort of sentence, Mary gives us three key insights into God's coming salvation. And, and they are that Jesus is the king, to put it short, Jesus is the king, trust is the key, and humility is the condition. Uh, and so let's pray and ask the Lord's help today that we can understand his word. Gracious Father, We cannot believe that you have sent the Son. We're, we're overwhelmed with gratitude. We pray uh, that during this time of, of great joy and um, all the warmth of holiday traditions and all of the beauty that there is to see, whether it's just snow or just the wonderful family gatherings that we get to enjoy, that we would see how beautiful those things are in light of, of what all of this means that the king has come in the flesh. Fill us with humility and wonder and true faith. We pray in your son's name. Amen. And so as we ask this question, what is the gospel according to Mary? Uh, The first key insight that we have into God's salvation is that Jesus is the one who brings God's salvation. Jesus brings God's salvation. This is our first point. And therefore, we should reject false saviors. Jesus brings God's salvation. Uh, we see this in chapter 1. As I said, we'll be in Luke 1 this whole time. But we see it in the message from the angel to Mary. I'm, uh, and I'm just going to read that quickly here. The angel said to her, that is Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the resume of a king. Do you notice the language that's used to describe him? He will be given the throne. He will reign forever over his, his, his father, David. And, and most of us would say, well, wait, I thought Joseph was his father. We're talking about David, the king of Israel. What, what are we saying here? Is this just religious mumbo-jumbo? Is it just sort of, uh, some, you know, kind of like how we say, like, LeBron James, we call him King James. Is it kind of like, no, 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 no. Is it just poetic imagery? No, 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 no. What, what are we saying here? Jesus comes to us as the climax of a story that has been written and is being written across time and space and the story in which we find ourselves this very morning 
Parkview Church, November 25th, 2018, on a cold, snowy day. It is the story of God's kingdom, of God's salvation. Now, the kingdom of God, this idea that God would one day come and rescue his people once and for all through his son is, is, is something that the people of Israel were very familiar with. This is something, uh, it, was, it was a reality that they proclaimed to one another when they told the story of their nation. See that in Second Chronicles 26. I'm just going to flash these up here to sort of orient you, but there are countless examples of this. It was, it, this was a truth that they remembered when they sang together. In Psalm 93, you can re- see a, a really clear example of that. They sang this together. They remembered it together. Um, after they were carried off into exile, remember we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. They're in captivity. They're off in exile. And the prophet Daniel sa- is dreaming about what it will be like the day when God's kingdom is restored and, and the people are saved and, the, and that they would become this beacon of God's salvation throughout the earth. Once again, they would be restored. This isn't religious mumbo-jumbo. And we miss this because uh, we put Jesus sort of in the, in the faith box, uh, he, you know, where he cares about Sundays, and um, he's not really that interested in sort of Monday mornings, politics, sports, and sort of just the everyday things of life. Uh, but that's not true at all. No matter who you are, and no matter where you've come from this morning, we all realize that something has gone terribly wrong in our world. We, we might not agree about what it is, but we all realize that something needs fixing. We all crave, and we might not use this word, but we all crave salvation. So we look to those things. We look to sports, the, peop- the places that we feel like God has left behind, sports or politics or, or, or whatever it is, to tell us a story of salvation that we can really believe in, right? That has some credibility. And we might not do that consciously, but we all do it. But God's salvation is not so, it's sort of an airy pie in the sky. Oh, well, we'll all fly away and it'll be fine. It's, it's not that. This is the story of God played across history, played across space and time, told through the nation of Israel, now told through his church, that God one day is going to make things right. And Jesus has come as the climax of that story, as a tiny, tiny baby in a town in Bethlehem. The second that Jesus put on flesh and came to earth, the idea that religion and, and, and what it means to be faithful to God, that, that that could just sort of remain in sort of an airy pie-in-the-sky sort of idea is, is totally blown away. This is something touchable. It's something, it's something huggable. It's something real. This is what God is doing. The salvation of God is about justice. That God will one day set all injustice right, and he will end all oppression. The salvation of God is about peace, that God will end all strife and war. The salvation of God is about love, love that never ends. The salvation of God is about joy, joy that can't be stolen through death. Salvation of God is about God restoring what once was, making his creation what it was always intended to be. And in Jesus, in this little baby boy born in Bethlehem, God has started his revolution. And he is unseating the kings of the world and putting the true king on the throne. And he will come again. And one day he will set the world to rights. This is the story of Jesus. 
Not only do we all realize we need this, however, uh, we also um, instinctively, like I said, we look for salvation. Uh, if, if we don't set Jesus within that story, within the story of God that has begun in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, you know, the fall and, and climaxing in Jesus, and once again when God comes and, and makes a new city that comes out of the clouds and shows us what, the, what this earth was always meant to be, if we don't set Jesus within that, that arc of, of world history, within that story, we will inevitably either try to stick him in another story that's, that's different and, and sort of be, he becomes sort of a fake Jesus, that's a second-rate Jesus, or, or we settle for just a different story altogether, right? And every one of us is, is doing this all the time. This is, this is a huge problem for us uh, because we've got sin in our hearts. We need to be sure that we have put Jesus in his proper context, in the story of God. Hungry hearts and that's, this is all of us, hungry hearts, like hungry people, if they don't get the food that they need, will inevitably gobble up poison. We need to be sure that we are satisfying ourselves on the story of the true Jesus, the story of the one true king who has come to set things right and will one day set all things right once and for all. Set your hope on him. We've got we've to get the story straight. So, have you guys heard of a novel called War and Peace? Leo Tolstoy, many of you have heads are nodding. Good. Uh, So this is famously long story, uh, famously complicated, hundreds of characters in the story, uh, and and so 360 chapters this book, right? And um, could you imagine picking up this book and saying, you know what, I know this is a good story, I'm just going to read the last chapter. Just pick it up, read chapter 360, and I think I'll get the gist of it, right? Pick it up, would anyone in here expect that you could understand this story or even the chapter that you read without reading the whole thing? No, you, w- you wouldn't do that with a novel. And we can't do that with Jesus, right? You cannot try to rip the Christmas story out of the whole context of the Bible. And when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, God will give him the throne of his father David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He is saying, here is the story that is coming to fruition in this tiny baby, and if you don't understand it, you're not going to understand Christmas. You're not going to understand God's salvation, the beauty that's there. I had a friend who, um, he, he was sharing the gospel with someone who, who I think he you know, was basically coming from an atheist background, and so he really, he knew nothing of the Bible. And this, it transformed this guy's sort of understanding of how to share the gospel with someone, what, what he needed to do. Because, um, because he didn't know any of it, um, so he, he would go and he'd share the gospel with this guy. He'd say, hey, you need to know Jesus died for you. Uh, save you from your sins so you don't have to go to hell. That was sort of his whole gospel message. This is a really compact little thing. And eventually, you know, after weeks and weeks of this guy sort of sharing that same news with him, he said, just stop, 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 stop. Don't you understand? I don't know any of the stuff that you're talking about. I don't know about who God is or heaven or hell and how any of this works. So when you tell me that's what God came to do, it sounds like you're saying like, hey, great news. I don't have to keep you locked in my basement anymore. Like, what are you talking about? He need, he, it's because he did not understand the whole story. Right? He did not get the whole story. And so he realized when he shared the gospel with this guy, he couldn't start at, at Matthew 1. He couldn't start in Ephesians 2 where we, we might often start, or John 3.16, he had to start in Genesis 1. And we, we need to do the same thing to ourselves to make sure we put Jesus in the proper place. And, and on the one hand, we have to recognize, like I said, that if, if we don't do that, we'll inevitably stick Jesus in a story where he doesn't belong or we'll settle for sort of a false savior. We have 
a strong tendency to put Jesus into a story where we're the hero and Jesus comes in to sort of help me to escape and get salvation from the things that just make me unhappy. Jesus, this is sort of Jesus in sort of a self-help guru mode. But Jesus' story is better. I hope you see that. Read your Bible, you'll see Jesus' story is better. And it's better to play a bit part in the story of God is better than being the star of your own little story. Jesus is trustworthy. Make him your king. Make him your king. Now, in Jesus' time, just like today, one of the strongest temptations for them in terms of sort of having a different story for who Jesus was and trying to, trying to shoehorn, it, shoehorn him into it uh, was a story where we could set everything right by political conquest. If only we got the right person in office, we could overthrow for them. It was overthrow Rome and sort of get the, get the right people up there. Then we would have salvation. Then we would really be set free. We face the same temptation today. Um, we need to be wary, each of us, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, of trying to shoehorn Jesus into your ideas of, of what will set the world right politically. Especially in our time and place, we need to read the Bible, and when we see things that critique our understanding of, of, of politics, of, of anything, but especially politics, because this is what we're talking about, we need to let the Bible critique it, right? Um, if, if the Jesus of the Bible never contradicts your political understanding, then you might need to reevaluate, right? And I think a good way to think about this is if, if you were to sort of chart like your sort of emotional highs and lows throughout the week and, and sort of see what did that correspond with? What did those moments correspond with? What we'd hope, right, is that it would be corresponded with, ah, I, I shared the gospel with this friend. I'm, I'm praying for this friend who doesn't know Christ. There's suffering in my community. S- stuff like that. And I know, ugh, when I look at my heart, it's, did the Cubs win? You know? It's not. It's, uh, this person said something mean to me, and I'm, I'm down, you know? Um, but it's a, it's a good diagnostic for us to see if we have understood the gospel correctly. And, the, of course, a, a huge application of this is just read your Bible. Read the whole thing. Every part of it is delicious, Right? How many of you, I'm guessing none of you, on Thursday for Thanksgiving, you went through, you know, whatever, the buffet line you got, and you just loaded up only cranberry sauce? Just only cranberry sauce? You're like, I'm just, I'm only interested in cranberry sauce this year. None of you. What you do is you go, you get a little bit of turkey, get some sweet potatoes, you go, you get a little bit of green bean casserole, you get all the stuff, and you got a nice, you got a little bit of everything, right? Okay, in the same way, Go through your Bible, read Genesis, and find out about the God who created everything and has all power. Read Leviticus and learn what he requires of his people. Read read and go to Matthew and go to Luke and go to Ephesians. Learn about how God, through Jesus and through his apostles, led his early fledgling movement, uh, which we are a part of. Read the whole thing and see the story of God. And so Mary teaches us, Her first insight is that it's Jesus who brings God's salvation. This big story that's been playing across space and time has come to a climax in this tiny baby. And and she reminds us that we must reject false ideas about Jesus and the story that he is a part of. The second insight into God's salvation that Mary gives us is that true faith trusts God's promises. So seek nothing more. That is nothing more than God's promises alone. Now, Luke makes this point uh, by drawing a sort of case study between Mary, on the one hand, which is sort of the, 
the main study that we're doing today, but also Zechariah, who features in the earlier part of chapter one. Um, and, and what she does, or sorry, what, the, what Luke does, is he makes all these really clear connections and tells the story in such a similar way that it's impossible not to sort of hold these characters up and, and look at the differences between them. And I'll just go through this really quick, but so both narratives begin with similar ex- explanations of each character and emphasizing sort of their locale, their lineage. Um, this will be up on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read the passages, but both visited by the angel Gabriel, the same angel. Both receive messages about a miraculous birth that's coming, and they're told in very remarkably similar ways, if you look at it. Both of them respond with perplexity. Both sing songs of praise. I can go on and on. Okay, the, when Luke's audience, which they would have heard it, they probably wouldn't have read Luke, they would have heard it, someone reading it to them, this would have been so obvious to them. They would have said, oh, okay, obviously we're supposed to sort of see these, see these stories in parallel and sort of compare and contrast. Uh, I'm pointing it out just to make sure we see that. And what he's doing is, is showing us, here is what God is like, and here is the character that he desires in his servants. And especially in this first point, I'm going to revisit this for the third point. That's why I'm sort of building it out now. But is, the first thing we see is that God wants his servants to trust him, to take him at his word, and seek nothing more than his promise alone. So what is, if we've seen all these differences, then what's the difference? What's the key difference between Zechariah and Mary? Well, the first one is their response to the, to the promise of the angel, the good news that the angel brings. Uh, Zechariah receives uh, this word from, from the Lord through his angel, and in verse 18, um, we read his response. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years. His response is, how shall I know this? How, basically, how can I be sure that this is going to happen? Can you, can you give me a sign? Can you give me some assurance? In, in verse 34, we read Mary's response to the angel's message. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary's question is, how will, how will God be able to do this? It's, it's, it seems impossible in my mind, but how's he going to do it? It's, it's, it's a posture of wonder toward what God will do, whereas Zechariah's seems to be a posture of needing assurance. I need a sign. Can you prove it to me? Pro- absolutely prove it to me that this is going to happen, right? Now, it's, it's, it may be hard to say, well, we're going to draw an entire point from this to these two sort of snippets of, of their response. But we go on, if I were to read to you the whole narrative, and it's an 80-verse chapter, so I'm not going to, but uh, it's worth reading. You should read it on your own. But uh, you would see, what we find out is that Zechariah's response is faithless. And, and you sort of, if you imagine the situation, here's Zechariah, he goes into the temple, and this is where he gets this message from the angel. And you would expect that he, after getting this great news, he'd be like, oh my goodness, this is great news. My son is going to be born. He's going to be John the Baptist, by the way, is his son. And he's going to do all this great stuff. And he would run out of the temple, and then he would say, everyone, great news. The angel just visited me in there, and it's, it's awesome. Some great stuff is going to happen. God is bringing redemption to us. And instead... What happens is, because of his faithfulness, he's made mute. And some people think deaf, too, uh, because of some other stuff in the chapter. What a, what a huge bummer, right? What a, what a missed opportunity. But when we look at Mary's response, how will this be? And eventually, of course, she says, famously, let it be to me according to your word. Wow. 
I am the servant of the Lord, Mary says in verse 38. Let it be to me according to your word. But I think to understand this, we really have to enter into that deep irony of Zechariah, this great priest, right? Religious, he's in Jerusalem, which is where God's kingdom is sort of supposed to come to, come to pass, and, and he's got everything going for him. He comes into the temple, and by the way, priests, to, to be selected to, give, to offer incense was a once-in-a-lifetime, literally once-in-a-lifetime ex- opportunity. You got chosen by lot, and then your name was removed. So it would never happen again. So he's old. It's finally happening for him. His big moment has come. He goes in there. His whole life he's been praying to have a child, and he's never had one. And an angel appears to him. Boom! Angel in the holy place. Holy guy. Angel. Good news about God's salvation. Boom! And that, this is his response. How will I know? So the angel in the holy place, at the holy time, doing the whole, that wasn't enough of a sign. That wasn't, he wants more. And, and when we compare to Mary, the contrast comes out even more. Mary, who had none of that, just says, I am, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And while it's easy, to look, it's easy to look at Zechariah and say, okay, so he's sort of the loser that we're supposed to avoid being like, and we should just, I'm like Mary, obviously, and Zechariah's a bad guy. But the same flaw that we see in Zechariah is, is in all of us. It's in all of us. And we should let this story critique us. Um, See, we fool ourselves by thinking that only, if, if only God would show us a little bit more evidence, then we would have Mary's posture. Then we would, we would really just obey him gladly. If only, I don't know, maybe, maybe if God really obviously answered a prayer of mine, then, then I, would, then I would really follow him. You know, maybe if he gave me an audible word from heaven, maybe if an angel showed up to me, right? Maybe if uh, a healing, or maybe just a, more of a sense of his presence, more of a, I don't know, something like that. If only I had, a, that's the problem. That's why I'm not, because I don't have enough evidence. And when we read the story of Zechariah, it completely dismantles that in our hearts, because the problem is not having enough evidence. The problem is not ha- that we don't have faith to trust God's promises. The truth is that God has given us all we need to trust him. That's, that's what he desires from us. Just take me at my word. And, and you, you realize this is what he wants because isn't that how you want to be treated? You know, you want people to just take you at your word, to trust you, right? How much more does God want that from, from us? He, we want to take Mary's posture toward the Lord. Let it be, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be thus for me. Now, anyone who spent significant time, now I've got the nephews, I've got the, the kids in my life a lot more. Uh, anyone who spent time with a young person like this has had this experience, I think. You're hanging out, whatever, playing, and kid goes to the bathroom. You hear the flush, don't hear the water turn on, right? They come back out, okay. Hey, did you wash your hands? Yeah. Okay. Did you use soap? Yeah. And then the crucial point. Okay, come here, I'm going to smell, the ha- smell your hands, just, just to make sure, right? And then you hear the water turn on, and about a minute later they come back. Right? Now what happened there, right? They have not proven, uh, through their faithfulness to, toward hand-washing, that we can take them at their word. But, especially if we've understood point one about God's faithfulness to his word throughout time, God has. God has prism himself faithful. We can trust his promises. If you're here, uh, I want to suggest, if you're here and you're questioning Christianity, 
and, and discovering whether this is something you can believe in. I want to suggest to you, um, not that you stop seeking answers to your questions, because we want to be a community where that's very much welcomed, but I want to suggest to you that you not only seek evidence, but that you also seek faith itself. Sift the evidence, but if you only sift the evidence without asking for faith to believe the evidence that God has already provided, I, I don't think you're going to get too far. Ask for faith to believe the evidence that God has given. Now, if you're here and you do trust Jesus, you know God, I want to encourage you to recognize that the times that are most difficult, the times when you are not feeling assured that God is there, where you're feeling, is God trustworthy? Can I, can I believe his promises? Can I, can I know that these are the moments where God is, is cultivating true faith in your heart? He has not abandoned you. I know some of you are here and you feel like you are in a rut of spiritual dryness and deadness. And you feel like you have not had joy in prayer, joy in reading your Bible. God has not given up on you. He is not far from you. Press forward. The the mere fact that you realize that you're feeling that way is evidence that God is still beckoning you forth. A, a hunger, you have a hunger for hunger, right? You have a hunger for God. And, and, and I want you to stoke that by pressing in, by, you know, I don't feel like reading my Bible today. I don't, I, I feel that, here I am, I, I feel that, right? Press in and ask God to give you faith to trust him, to believe his promises. This is Mary's second insight into God's salvation, and, and it's the true faith Trust God's promises. Parkview, let's be a church that cultivates a heart of faith that takes God at his word, no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going to cost us. It was very costly for Mary to believe the words of the angel. It was really only good news for Zechariah, but for Mary it was very costly. I want us to be that kind of church. True faith, trust God's promises. So we need to seek nothing more than his words alone. The third, the final thing, the final insight that we get from Mary into God's salvation is that God's salvation is for the least likely, for the least likely. So we should embrace our poverty. Now, we're going to come to what many consider probably the most beautiful song in the Bible. Uh, Mary's, the Magnificat is often called, and it's very frustrating for me to look at as, as, as a preacher. It, just beautiful. This, this, could be the whole, this could be the whole series, probably. But let me, I'll just read it to you. This is Mary's exaltation to God after, and she's conceived at this point. She's, she's yeah. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he's sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Yes, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. God has come and exalted the humble. If, if, if you were to give a, a title sort of to, to Mary's song, it would have to be something like, God's salvation is for the least likely. 
here is who, in, in, in Mary's song, here's who ends up on top, right? Who, here's who ends up blessed by God. Servants, those who fear God, those of humble estate, and the hungry. And here's who ends up opposed on the bottom. The proud, the mighty, the rich. And th- this, this third insight, it's also playing off of something that we see in, in Luke's por- portrayal of Zechariah and Mary, the sort of case study they does, right? Because if you were to ask the average sort of audience person of Luke's s- story of salvation, how, if you were to ask them, how is God's salvation going to come on earth? They would answer something like this. Well, obviously, God's salvation is going to come through sort of a respected old person, right? Maybe a priest. Not through a young, unwed, pregnant person. Obviously, the kingdom is coming through a man and not a woman. How is, I mean, a woman can't even bear witness in court at that point. How is it? How is that? Well, obviously, the kingdom is coming through Jerusalem, right? God's city. It's not through Nazareth. Whoever heard of Na- I've never even heard of Nazareth. And in every case, Luke wants us to see God has not chosen the obvious candidate. God has utterly turned the world's ideals about what it means to be powerful and influential and to be able to change things, bring salvation, right? He's turned those all on their head in the person of Mary so that when we can see that when God works, he does not need help. He needs humility. When we say least likely, when, when I say God's salvation is for the least likely, this is what we're keying in on. Mary's humility. Mary's humility. And this is where we sort of have to take a back, step back and say, what does it mean to be humble? To, be, to, to have humility. And this, there's a big difference between the way that the Bible uses this word and the way often we use it today. We sort of imagine, here's what humility is. Sort of the star quarterback, he's walking off the field, he just threw for 5,000 yards, 26 touchdowns in one game, and he's walking off the field. Wow, he just scored 500 points. And then the sideline reporter comes up. He's like, Billy, Billy, how'd you do it? And, the side, and he's like, oh, it wasn't a big deal. And that's humility. Here's what we have here. <laughs> to call someone humble, we have, we have Mary as our example. To call someone humble in Jesus' time, it, to the audience that Luke is writing to, to call them humble is not a compliment. Not a compliment to call someone humble. It's an insult. It would have been taken with more like our verb, humiliate. A humiliated person. Because we've sort of absorbed the humility sort of as a virtue, we kind of lose this, but it's about being truly lowly. That you have nothing to offer. To be humble means that you have no resume, no power, no influence, no, no standing. And, and especially for Luke's audience, obviously the favor of the gods was not upon you, right? God's, God's favor obviously doesn't rest on you. It's on the rich people. They, obviously he's blessed them. But no, here is the image that we get. This is the image of humility that we should cultivate. Here's Mary, 15 years old or so, pregnant out of wedlock, poor, powerless. This, this is who we should have on stage. Humility. Humility is that she recognizes that of all the people on earth, she is the least likely person for God's salvation to come to and through. Are we like that? As believers in the gospel of free grace, we should feel a deep 
kinship with Mary and people like Mary who have nothing to offer. No one needed to remind Mary that she wasn't good enough. Every day, her circumstances reminded her of that. God is honored, and we find our proper place in his story of salvation when we realize that we are not the most likely. We are the least likely. God is not drafting his team according to the world's standards. And he's doing that because he wants Mary's on his team. Now, why does he do it this way? Why, why pick the least likely? Well, uh, there's sort of a debate between is, who is the greatest basketball player of the last, at least of the last 50 years. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Anyone? Well, between them, 15 NBA Finals appearances, nine championships. Now, the question is, how many times has a team with one of those guys on it, how many times has the coach of that team won coach of the year? Anyone know? The answer is once. You'd think it would be more, right? Why? Well, when you've got the greatest player on earth on your team, you don't really need a great coach because you've got a great team, right? No one says, wow, what a great coach. Everyone says, wow, what a, what a bunch of great players they have. Do they even need a coach, right? Now, God is the one who, out on the playground, he takes, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, the people who are picked last, the people who didn't even get picked because they were just left over at the end, right? And, and he puts them together, and they become this incredible team who does nothing but win, and when people look at them, they, they just have to say, okay, coach of the year, obviously, because this guy only has one leg, this guy's blind, this guy, he is awful, you know? And all you can say is, wow, this coach is incredible, how did he put this team together, this team of misfits and disasters together and make something that actually works? All glory goes to him, right? This is God's plan. This is, this is what he has to work with, is us. And we, do we take that, po- we must take this posture. We are the least likely. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous Welsh preacher in London uh, through the 40s and the 60s, when he had people in his office who wanted to become church members, he would ask them, often he would just ask them one question. He would ask them, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You want to be a member, you got to be a Christian. And uh, he said there were basically two responses he would hear. The first one was people would be offended. Are you ser- Haven't you seen me in church? Haven't you seen me out in the community doing, don't you know who my parents are? Didn't you see me get baptized? Of course, I'm the most likely person. Of, of course, I'm a Christian. And this would, obviously, it would really concern him because they, they, that's what they were saying. They were saying, of course, I'm a Christian. Look at me. And then he would have another category of people. And these are the people who said this comforted him greatly when they would say something like this. And they would say, I, I can't believe it. I, I mean, I look at my life. I feel like I've done everything wrong. I feel like, you know, everything I've tried to do to, to make things right has, has blown up in my face. And yet, oh, God, this is how did, he did it. I'm, I'm a, I don't know how it happened. I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a, I guess I, I'm a Christian. Do we take that, that mindset? I'm, I'm not the most likely. I'm the least likely. God, God has taken a disaster and made it, made it beautiful. Now, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we cultivate this heart of, of, of seeing ourselves? We're the least likely, embracing this poverty so that we can experience it, really so we can experience the true joy of, of knowing God, the God who loves the unlovable, Right? 
Nothing will defeat that, that sort of attitude, sort of the of, of most likely to be a Christian attitude, like being in deep community, deep community. Who in your life asks you tough questions? Who asks you tough questions? If the answer is no one, be honest with yourself. Those are very dangerous, dangerous waters. Be very, very careful. Pride is a vine that thrives in isolation. Cultivate a sense of your spiritual poverty, not, not just for the sake of, of, you know, I don't know, being down on yourself, uh, but rather so that you can celebrate the God who can turn disasters into daughters and, and sinners into sons. Rejoice, rejoice in it. When you read your Bible, uh, don't just look at the great characters who are doing everything right. Look at, look at the ones who are, are, are screwing everything up. Look at, you know, Zechariah in this first part. He, he really is redeemed at the end. Uh, but look at him and say, wow, I'm, I'm just like him. Mary's third insight into God's salvation is that God's salvation is for the least likely, the least likely. So embrace your poverty. And if we were to sort of summarize all these things together and sort of answer the question that we started with, what is sort of the gospel according to Mary? It would be something like this. Like Mary, grasp God's salvation. Embrace God's salvation by trusting God's promises and embracing true humility. Now, when we look at the life of Mary, uh, we don't just see sort of a courageous young woman who, who, who responded faithfully to God. We also have to look beyond her to see the beauty of Jesus. Now, while, while Mary could only look forward to what was to come in Jesus, uh, we have the privilege of being able to look back and see what Christ did. So Mary shows us incredible faith that when, when she heard the promises of God, uh, she said, your will be done. Let, let it be according to your word. I'm your servant. Your will be done. Jesus shows us the fullness of this when he said to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would be crucified, he said, your will be done, even though it would cost him everything. Mary shows us radical humility by recognizing her lowly estate. She truly was lowly, right? She truly was humble. Jesus shows us the fullness of true humility by recognizing, look, Jesus had everything to offer, and yet he gave it all up for us. At the heart of the gospel, Parkview Church, is this. God comes to us not as a king who conquers, but as a lamb who is slain, who wins by losing, who picks the least likely people and the least likely methods to accomplish his salvation. And this Advent season, let's join Mary in looking forward to Jesus, the one true coming king. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you. And Father, we thank you for what Christ has done. We pray that you would cultivate in us a sense of our neediness for you. We pray you would cultivate faith. Lord, give us the gift of faith. Give us the gift of true repentance that we would see. We are not the star players that you needed, but we're the, we're the disasters that you've turned into, into your church that you love and that you want to use uh, for your glory. I pray that we would be transformed by this gospel to be the church that you intend for us to be. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.